Well, good morning. My name is Daniel, and it's great to have you at the 10.45 a.m. service that we've done here at Christ Central. It's uh, been a, a day we've been excited about, prayer for, prayerful for, hopeful for, and so I'm glad you're at the second service with us this morning. Uh, we are beginning uh, a fall sermon series this morning in the Old Testament book of Exodus and launching into our city groups this week. And so if you want to get connected into a city group or life group, you can still do that. You can sign up at the Connect table. But this is kind of our fall launch Sunday, if you will. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Exodus. And we've titled this uh, series, The Journey of Redemption. And Exodus, if you don't know, is the second book of the Bible right after Genesis if you wanted to read the Bible correctly, you would actually read Exodus as chapter 2 of a, a five-chapter book. The five-chapter book are the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. And the intent of the author is that they should be read together. But over the next 12 weeks, we're going to be looking at this second chapter, the book of Exodus. The word Exodus means exit or depart. And it is the story of the epic journey of Israel being redeemed out of Egypt and delivered to the promised land. It, Exodus is Israel's redemption story. The story of being redeemed from Egypt, journeying to Canaan, redeemed from slavery, journeying towards salvation. And to talk about story today has become somewhat normative in our culture, right? If you think about it, people like to talk about story today. A psychologist will, will tell you that, that there's power in knowing your personal story if you want to be healed. Marketing will emphasize the power of story if you want to sell a product. All right, we, we talk a lot about story. Story, in its essence, is really just this. It's a, there's a plot, there are characters, there's a drama. Normally there's movement towards some good. Inevitably it's going to be thwarted on some level by a challenge that has to be overcome uh, in order to achieve the resolution. Right, that's... That's what a story is in its basic form. And I believe every person, every person operates by some world story. Some people might call this a world view. A world story is that story that a person lives by that helps them make sense of life. It's that story that a person lives by by which you view the world. Think about this with me for a little bit. What happens... When an event so grand in scale becomes the story of your life. Let's think about this in a negative and positive way. Negatively, what happens to a child who's abused? They could see everything in their life, their story then could be seen through the window of that event for the rest of their life. Positively think about it. What happens to a young man or a young woman who's voted most likely to succeed in high school. They could see the rest of their life through the window of that event. Right? There's a positive and negative way to view your story depending on what events have happened in your life. Story can become so ingrained, so entrenched in your mind that it begins to form the way in which you view every subsequent event. The events become much more than just historical happenings they actually begin to help identify you or you define your identity through them. Exodus is a story with historical fact, real events in real time, but it's much more than just history. It is the story that framed the consciousness of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. It became the story that helped define God's people in the New Testament. 
I want to tell you this morning that it should be the story that helps define the church today. It should help us understand our salvation for every person is on a journey. And my prayer as we look at Exodus over the next 12 weeks is that God would lead all of us on a journey of redemption. So we're going to look this morning at Exodus chapter 1, portion of chapter 2. Our custom here at Christ Central is to stand as we read God's Word. So I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand as I read parts of chapter 1 and then three verses out of chapter 2. This is Exodus chapter 1. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And do not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Then verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we come asking, anticipating, hoping that you would speak to us this morning through this Old Testament book of Exodus, that your spirit, which is powerful, would speak to our spirits individually and as a body of Christ, as a family, would our, our minds be illumined and hearts softened, that we would be transformed and walk into the truths that you would have for us this morning. Would Christ be exalted in this place? Would the messenger myself be removed so Christ is seen clearly? We pray you bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I read a few months back the novel Silence by Shusaku Endo. Anybody read this book, Silence? Anybody seen the movie uh, by Shusaku Endo? I, I finally watched the movie a few weeks ago. The whole uh, premise of the story, it's based on true events, 17th century Japan. Two Jesuit priests are sent to go to Japan to find their mentor, who they had heard recanted of his faith in Jesus Christ underneath the brutal persecution of Christians from the Japanese regime. And so these priests arrive in Japan to find faithful followers of Jesus. And the book and movie portray the systematic oppression and persecution of Christians by the Japanese. And it was painful to read, and 
uh, extremely painful to watch the torture and the killing of those who followed Jesus. And these priests felt powerless, that they longed to, to alleviate the suffering and the pain of the Japanese church. And, uh, and at the same time, though, they're being encouraged by the Japanese church to remain in hiding because the Japanese church knew they needed their presence and their spiritual leadership. And, and so there's this powerful scene in the movie uh, and in the book where the two priests are encouraged to be in hiding and they're watching on this kind of hill mountainside as three Christians, uh, Japanese Christians, are placed on crosses and then put into the sea. And there's a crowd of witnesses watching and their deaths would come as the sea would roll in, the tide would roll in and beat against their body, drown them temporarily and then give them some reprieve as the the tide would roll back out, and then it would roll back in, beating against their body, drown them temporarily, and it would take hours and hours and sometimes days for death to occur. And so these priests are watching these three faithful followers of Jesus hung on crosses in the middle of the sea, crowd of witnesses watching as this is happening, and the last man to die in his last breath cries out and sings a hymn of praise to God. And all of the witnesses marvel at his faith. Yet one of the two priests is in a crisis of faith, looking on and says this, that maybe you've said. Gives voice to something maybe you've either wanted to externally voice or internally voice. And this is what the priest watching these three die says. Behind the depressing silence of the sea, the silence of God. The feeling that while men raise their voices in anguish, God remains with folded arms silent if you've ever felt like god was silent to you if you ever prayed and and wondered god do you hear me are you there god are you sitting there arms folded doing nothing in the midst of pain and suffering or as our fears rise and we feel trapped in some way and we cry out it can sometimes feel like god is sitting there silent i'm gonna give you two points this morning very simple First is that our journey, like Israel's journey, is filled with pain and suffering. Our journey is filled with pain and suffering. Look at the beginning of Exodus with me again. There's this picture uh, that we're given. Israel's increasing greatly in Egypt, verse 7. The Israelites are increasing. Hebrews, Israelites, reading this would have been drawn back to the language of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God's mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Right? The Israelites reading Exodus would have read verse 7 and said, God is blessing us and we, we are fulfilling the mandate. Actually, Exodus 1 verse 1 is the same exact verbiage and language as Genesis 46, 8. The intent is to draw the readers, draw Israel back to remember God's original creation and his intent is that all people would flourish and multiply and fill the land. Do you remember, can you remember if you've read Genesis how Israel ended up here in Egypt. Joseph was deceived by his brothers, sold into slavery, right? And God used what was evil for good and raises Joseph up. And Pharaoh begins to bless Joseph and bless all his family. Therefore, Israel is increasing here in Egypt. So that's what is happening in verse 7. God's people are being blessed. They are flourishing. But then verse 8 happens. Look at verse 8. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And things go from bad to worse. This new king sees the Israelites, these immigrants, 
these ethnic minorities as a great threat to Egypt. And he systematically begins to oppress them. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And Pharaoh sets taskmasters over them. He gives them back-breaking labor. Pharaoh made them slaves in Egypt. They were cheap labor force. Verse 14 says that the Israelites were bitter with hard service as they worked as slaves. And to make the suffering even worse, Pharaoh decreed that all Hebrew male children, children be killed, infanticide, and every female child forced to assimilate to Egypt culture. What is happening in Exodus is is a picture of anti-Genesis. This oppression is anti what God had intended. Pharaoh is a picture of the anti-God. God created life. He intended life to be flourishing. God created work and said it was good. And now this new king is enslaving and taking life. The suffering the people were enduring was coming at the hand of evil. And that's what evil is. Evil is that which goes against God's purpose and design for the flourishing of life. That's evil. And evil can be broad and systemic, like Nazi Germany and apartheid South Africa and Jim Crow America and infanticide of all kinds. The systemic oppression and suffering and the snuffing out of any life is the reversal of God's creation. I read a book in seminary that was one of the most difficult books that I've ever read. It's called Stumbling Towards Faith. It's a memoir of a woman who was sexually abused by her father when little. And her father would molest her, and while molesting her, would recite the Lord's Prayer. His father used that which God gave his people, a prayer, and used it for evil. Pure evil. Evil can be broad, and evil can be narrow and personal to each one of us whether it be being picked on, called names, abused by family, spouse who's mistreated you. Each one of us has our own Egypt. Ways in which we've experienced darkness and pain and suffering and sin. And whether the events are broad and they've targeted a large demographic of people that you identify with or it's more narrow and personal to you, these events can be defining events that shape and form your world story. These real events that have happened in all of our lives can become defining moments that lead us to understandable deep fears, deep insecurities, possibly even deep entrapments because we don't know how to live in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our fear and our insecurity. Egypt for Israel and our Egypt is a place where we forget that God created us in his image and goodness. Egypt is a place where life is oppressed and it's a place where people are enslaved. Yet we were created and born for life with God and with others and love with, for God and love for one another. And over the course of time, if we live with this world story, this worldview defining us, if we live with Egypt defining us, we can wonder, who am I? And God, where are you? God, it sure seems like you're silent. Are you even there? Are you just sitting with arms folded? Here's my second point. God is at work in our journey, even when it seems like he's silent. Look at chapter 2, 23 to 25 that I read, and I'm going to come back again to this next week, but I love chapter 2, 23 to 25. It says, During those main days, 
The king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people Israel. And God knew. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God hears our groaning, church. God hears our tears. Your tears have a voice. And our God bends his ear to hear them. I'm not sure of all the sufferings you've endured, but I do know this. In the midst of our suffering, God sees you. God hears you. God knows you. Nothing we experience escapes God's notice. Look at verse 24. It says, God remembered his covenant. God remembering is not like God had his mind jogged and he, oh, he forgot and he remembered. God remembering his covenant means that God is calling prior promises to mind with an intention to act. God saw the people of God suffering and God was moved with pity and God knew his people. And so God was going to carry out his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that all the people of God would be blessed and would flourish and flourish in a life in Canaan, the promised land. God was going to carry out his redemption plan. He was going to lead his people on this epic journey from slavery to salvation. This is our story, church. This is our story, that we have a God whose promises are stronger, greater, and more powerful than any evil we might experience in this world. Look at how God is at work, even when it appears he's silent in our passage. The first thing to note is that each time Pharaoh oppresses, the Lord multiplies Israel. I love it. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God actually uses the suffering and the oppression to further his purposes through his people. uh, Crawford preached last week, if you were here, and he, he said there's nowhere in the Bible that God promises we won't suffer. That's true. We will suffer because we live in a broken world in which evil prowls around. But the God of the Bible and our God that we believe in does promise that he will use even our suffering to further his plans and his purposes through us in this world. I mean, the Lord uses two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah, to protect these children who are going to be born. God used two midwives, verse 17, who feared God more than they feared the repercussions of Pharaoh. You want a a biblical principle? I'll give you one good biblical principle. God chooses what is weak in this world to shame that which is strong. God uses the weak to defeat the strong. I love the faith of these two midwives. They took a stand for life. They stood up for life because they trusted God more than they feared what might happen. And verse 20 says that God dealt well with them. Do you notice that no one else in the whole chapter receives a name? The king, the pharaoh, he doesn't have a name. But these two midwives are named, Shipra and Pua. That's not an accident, that's purposeful. People all over the world that would read this Exodus story, they would read about this powerful, mighty pharaoh, but they would never know who he is. But they would forever remember the two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. So let me give you two applications coming out of these two beautiful women. Because they are beautiful. And that's actually what their names mean. Shipper literally means beautiful one, and Pua means splendid one. 
Let me give you one application first. People that fear God impress God. People that fear God impress God. God is glorified when people trust Him more than they fear others and fear the world. God is glorified when His people stand up for life, when His people fight for life. You remember June 5th, 1989, if you were around at that time, a powerful image that was portrayed on every television across our country. One young man stood in front of military tanks in Tiananmen Square, Beijing, China, standing between military tanks and hundreds of protesters who were about to be killed. And this one man stood tall, stood in the gap between mighty military power and hundreds of vulnerable lives. Stood up for some life. Corey Ten Boom, always been one of my heroes, a Christian. She hid Jews in her basement in Nazi Germany, saving thousands of lives despite what might have happened to her if the German right found out. God loves when his people fight for life. When God's people fear him and honor his plan more than they fear the potential mistreatment that might come. What does it look like for you? It's like for you to stand up and fight for life. It's like you for to stand up and fight for the lives of children, the abused, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the neglected. It's look like for you to fight for justice for those who are experiencing injustice. It's like you for to for you to stand up and fight for life eternal for those that you know and love and care for, family, neighbors, coworkers that you've yet to share the love of Christ, the redeeming love of Christ with. It's like you for to stand up and fight for them, to share this gospel of a Savior who rescues from sin. People that fear God, people that step out in faith in these ways, impress God, and God's glorified in it. I'll give you a second point of application. God's plans are not dependent on any king. God's plans are not dependent on any political party. Pharaoh and Egypt are strong and they're powerful and this Pharaoh is determined to cause pain and suffering on God's people. But it's not Pharaoh's plans that prevail, but the Lord's purposes that prevail. God's purposes are being carried out in our world and it's not dependent. It's not dependent on any ruler or certain authority. God's purposes are not dependent on the right liberal candidate or the right conservative candidate. God's purposes are not dependent on any political party. He will use, God will use even wicked rulers to bring about His purposes through His people, as we see in Exodus chapter 1. Israel's hope was not in their political power or military power. Their hope was that God promised to them to deliver them from slavery to salvation, from Egypt to the promised land. And next week, we're going to look more into Israel's deliverer, Moses, but I want to point out one more way that Pharaoh intended for evil, what, what Pharaoh intended for evil, God used for his purposes. Look at the end of chapter 1, verse 22. Every Hebrew son, Pharaoh says, shall be cast into the Nile. The waters of the Nile were to be an instrument of destruction and death for the Israelites. And we'll see late next week that God draws Moses out of these waters to be the deliverer who would lead Israel out of slavery. When it seemed too dark and suffering was too much, God drew from the waters of the Nile that which was meant for destruction, a deliverer who would lead Israel on a journey of redemption. When all of us experience pain, 
All of us experience the suffering of this world caused by evil, and we might at times feel like God is silent. But God is at work, and His promises to deliver us, and His promises are more powerful than anything we might feel or experience. In church, we have a deliverer who is much greater than Moses. The gospel of the New Testament proclaims that God gave up His only Son, who experienced an, an, an oppression far greater than Israel experienced. And Jesus was prepared in the wilderness, and we'll see Israel was prepared, and we are prepared in the wilderness. Jesus' own didn't receive him. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was given over to a cross that was meant for destruction, but became the instrument of our salvation. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 says that Jesus came out of Egypt. And he doesn't just set Israel free, he sets all the nations free. To the cross of Christ, he sets all who call upon his name free. He is our deliverer. He is saving us and he's leading us on a journey. And I'm not sure what you're going through this morning. I'm not sure what darkness you've experienced or are experiencing, what bondage you have going on in your life, what injustices you've endured, pain that's been inflicted on you, or injustices and pain that you've observed that have undone you. But this I know. Our God knows, our God sees, and our God is at work. And His promise is to redeem us through a crucified Savior. And it's greater and more powerful than any evil we might encounter. Would you look to Jesus this morning? He is with you. We live in a world where suffering and evil exist. Pain and slavery to sin are are true, but this is not the end of our story. We live not in fear of this world, but we live as Christians by faith in the one who has saved us, is saving us, and has promised to one day save us completely. Dallas Willard says, faith is confidence grounded in reality. Confidence grounded in reality. And the true reality for those of us who believe in Christ, the Deliverer, is that even though we might suffer, we are headed to the promised land. And we are being delivered from slavery to salvation. This is my story. Is it your story? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is truth. This is true. Would you believe it? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to trust and to believe that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though we experience evil and suffering and pain in this world, and at times our human experience feels like you're silent, your arms are folded, we thank you that you remind us over and over through your word, as we just heard, and through the table that we're about to feast upon, that you are not silent, but you are at work. You are redeeming all that is broken and healing all that is is injured in this world. As we've got to pray, you help us to, to look to Jesus. Help us to see Christ this morning, the one who is leading us, the one who knows us, no matter what we're going through, who sees and is delivering and leading us on this journey of redemption. I pray that we would trust you in this this new day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.